we are beginning a new series in adult Sunday school today. Um, uh, we've been teaching through the Westminster Confession of Faith and have come, I think, to a good stopping point as we um, will look forward to um, going back and starting again in the fall, uh, looking at justification and adoption and sanctification, etc. Um, and um, it's been my practice now for many years um, here to, pre- to teach through a, an adult Sunday school portion of the scriptures each spring. And so um, I'm committed to doing that. I want to do that. In many ways, it's what I most enjoy doing with you all is just talking about the Bible and um, studying it together and discussing it. And so we're going to do that again um, this spring, starting today. And the, the book that we'll be looking at is the book of Job. And we've done recently some work in the New Testament in Sunday school. Uh, we've looked at James and 1 John the past several years. And uh, we're going to go to the Old Testament um, this spring, um, winter and spring, um, to look at Job. Now, of course, Job is one of the longer books in the Old Testament and also one of the more uh, complex books of the Old Testament. And so we're not going to be able to do, as we've done with those books, a very detailed verse-by-verse exposition, um, the cover, you know, the entirety of the book in that way. But uh, we've got about 14 Sundays between now and uh, when uh, we break for the summer. And I'm confident that in 14 weeks, we can do a good overview, a good um, study of the book of Job in that time. Um, So I just want to, today's probably going to be a little bit content heavy and less discussion oriented, but I really want to lay some groundwork for us as we um, go into the book of Job. So you start with this question, which is, who wrote the book of Job? And the answer, of course, is we don't know. Um, There's no um, declared author in Job. Um, And so um, it's a a bit of a mystery. And and of course, there are other um, Old Testament books like that as well um, that don't have a a specific author author that is attributed um, to have written them. Um, My own personal suspicion is that Job wrote Job, um, at least the first edition of it. Um, perhaps it was later um, collated and edited and put into its final form by someone like Moses or Solomon. They both seem like fine candidates to me uh, for that work. But And I would just say generally, um, I don't know why modern scholars um, have this idea that the people who experience the events um, that, they, that are described in the Bible um, couldn't have written about them. But it also seem, often seems to be the assumption. I see no reason why, uh, for example, Adam could not have written the early chapters of Genesis um, or Noah, um, the chapters that he um, experienced, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that doesn't mean that you know, Moses didn't come along uh, many years later and, and take documents and put them together under the inspiration of the Spirit and, and put them into the final form that we have today. But um, it seems to me to be a chronological assumption on our part that Ancient people um, would not have written about their experiences, and I, it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, so anyway, I just want to set up for you to think about, it's very possible that Job himself wrote the book of Job, at least in its first edition, and um, in many ways that makes sense, right? Because Job was the one who was there. Um, Job was the one who experienced these things. It seems to me the most natural explanation that he would have um, done so, especially in that uh, latter period of his life after uh, the events of the book. He lived 140 years, um, Job tells us, after um, he was restored and um, after his trial. He must have been doing something for that century and a half 
um, that he lived. Um, so is Job a historical story? Um, that's a question that often comes up when we think about the book of Job. Um, some modern scholars argue that it wasn't, that it's more, you know, maybe it was just a parable. Maybe it's just a story that was told. Um, you know, they say similar things about the book of Jonah. And it's not even really clear to me why that is, um, particularly about Job. Um, some of it may be the extreme nature of Job's suffering. Um, but regardless of the case, I, I don't think there's any evidence um, to speak to that. Um, and, and in fact, I think Job's, a great deal of Job's weight and value comes from the fact that we do believe that it is historical, that these things truly happened um, to, a, to a human man and that he um, experienced them and went through them um, really, literally. Um, the scriptures also bear witness to Job as a historical person. He's not mentioned a lot, um, but he is mentioned in Ezekiel. Look at that in a little more detail in a bit, but he is mentioned there in the context of um, being named along with um, Noah and Daniel and Job, um, Ezekiel says. Um, so he puts him right in a line with two other people that we consider to be clearly historical, um, at least conservative scholars of the scriptures believe that. And so um, there's, that, there's that evidence and also there's the evidence of the apostle James um, who writes in James 5 um, about Job and he um, uh, commends Job as an example of faithfulness and suffering. Um, and I think we should trust the scriptures in that regard. They treat Job as a historical person, um, as this, as a historical story, and I think we should have a similar uh, posture as well. So who was Job and when did the events of his life take place? Now this is a bit of a mystery. The scriptures don't give us um, clarity on this topic. Um, it, is, it is not clear um, exactly um, who Job is. He's not given a, you know, a genealogy, um, for example, in the book of Job as other uh, biblical characters often are. And so we do have to do a little bit of um, sort of just thought about this. I don't think it matters in any fundamental way to the story um, where we conclude um, or where we go with our conclusions in this regard. Uh, but it is an interesting question. Um, some factors to consider when we think about this question. Um, first is Job's long lifespan. Um, we're told um, at the beginning of the story that he has um, a number of children, that he has accumulated a lot of wealth, that he's a man of some significant social standing within his community. And so he's likely already at least, say at a minimum, 40 years old at that point. Um, and then at the end of the story, we're told that he lived another, another 140 years um, after um, his trial and, and, and wrestling with God, um, which would put his lifespan somewhere around you know, 180 in a kind of conservative estimate. And of course, that, the length of that kind of lifespan, um, as we look at the rest of the history of the scriptures, um, puts Job more likely within the era, era of the patriarchs, um, uh, men like Abraham, who also lived a very long time, um, much longer than people um, do today. Um, and you see that sort of those sort of declining lifespans after the flood, um, they slowly go down and down until we reach uh, what we would think of as more normal human lifespans um, that we experience today. And, and so I think that's one reason to think about Job as living lived during the era of the patriarchs. Another reason is his sacrificial practices that are described in the book of Job. One of the things Job does that demonstrates his piety and his blamelessness before God is that he offers sacrifice um, for himself and also for his children. 
Um, this indicates that it was likely that Job um, was one, not a part of the people of Israel, but also, it also I think indicates that probably the people of Israel um, as such did not e exist at the time of Job's um, life. Um, we see this kind of sacrificial offering, for example, being done by Abraham um, during that era of the patriarchs where he goes from place to place and builds altars um, in the land of promise, in the land of Canaan, and presumably offers sacrifices there um, for himself and for his family and their sins. Um, so I, I think it's, it's likely that, um, that Job is in that era um, of, um, of Scripture, um, in the sort of uh, middle part of Genesis um, era. Um, there's also a potential connection um, to Job, um, to Genesis itself in Genesis 36, to a man who was named Jobab in Genesis 36. Um, I'll look at that real quick for you. I don't want to spend too much time on this because it is inherently, you know, in some ways speculative, but it is interesting theory um, that may explain something about Job. So in Genesis 36, we have the line of Esau, the Edomites, um, as they become to be called. And in 28, we read, these are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aaron. And of course, Job is identified as having lived, being living in the land of Uz. Um, when, at the very beginning of the book. Um, then in verse 33, or verse, beginning of verse 31, these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city being uh, Dinhabah. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Borzah, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Now, if you're Recall, if your knowledge of the book of Job is pretty good, uh, one of Job's um, supposed friends that comes to him um, is named Eliphaz the Temanite, um, which is an interesting thing. So you have a couple different resonances there with Job's story, the word, the land of Uz or Uz, and um, the, uh, the Temanites um, being discussed. Um, also, the Septuagint, which is the a very early translation of the Old Testament into Greek that took place several centuries before the birth of Christ, appends this note to um, its translation of the book of Job. So this is not inspired, to be clear, and this is the work of scholars in that early period of um, history. Um, but it was before Christ. It was much closer to the events of Job um, than we are today. And those scholars um, appended to their translation of the Hebrew book of Job into Greek. They wrote, it appears from the Syriac book, that is the Aramaic version of Job, that he, Job, lived in the land of Uz on the confines of Edomia, or Edom, and Arabia. Previously, his name was Jobab. After taking an Arab woman to wife, he gave birth to a son whose name was Enon. His father was Zerah, descended from Esau, and his mother was Basaris so that he was fifth in line from Abraham. Esau, of course, is a descendant of Abraham, right? Um, although he's not in the line of promise that goes through Jacob, um, his brother. And then there follows um, the list of ancient kings of Edom on the lines of Genesis 36. And these are the kings, the writers of Septuagint um, include, which reigned in Edom, a country which he too, that is Job, governed. So the, the, the writers of the Septuagint at least believed most likely that Job was an Edomite king, um, fifth in line of, from Abraham who lived during that period. And, and certainly there's nothing in the book of Job that would exclude that interpretation. Um, and I, we can't prove that. I'm not going to 
you know, argue for that in any definitive way, but it's something to think about as you consider uh, Job, um, who he might have been. Um, certainly, he does seem to have some kind of kingly role uh, in, his, um, in his life. So regardless of whether Job was an Edomite king, it seems most likely that his setting for Job's life is that he was uh, a descendant of Abraham and thus learned to sacrifice to Yahweh. The, the, word, the covenant name Yahweh is used um, in the book of Job, especially in the beginning and the end. Uh, but he was probably not an Israelite who lived during the patriarchal period before the time of the giving of the Mosaic law. So some things to think about there. So how do the scriptures speak of Job? I want to look at this. I think, you know, we, we need to think about how the scriptures themselves interpret the book of Job. Um, in, in Ezekiel chapter 14, um, Ezekiel is living before the destruction of the temple, but after the first um, uh, portion of, of um, Israelites have been taken away by Nebuchadnezzar as hostages. And um, he is prophesying about the eventual destruction of Jerusalem, which will take place during his lifetime. And so Ezekiel 14, in verse 12, he says, And the word of Yahweh came to me, Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it, and break its supply of bread, and send famine upon it, and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord. And then a similar thing is said again, and in verse 20, the same thing is repeated. Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, that is in Jerusalem, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives by their faithfulness, or righteousness, rather. Um, so Ezekiel, to be clear, what was happening here is com he's commending Job um, as a faithful figure, akin to uh, Noah and Daniel, um, also two men who were um, blameless before the Lord. And Job is declared in that way, both at the beginning of Job and also again at the end, um, the Lord declares Job to be blameless. And this is an important um, uh, perspective on the book of Job, right? Because Job is going to say and do a lot of things that are going to be um, difficult. And as he wrestles with God, they may, he may not fit um, our sort of our assumption of what it means to be faithful to the Lord and righteous before him. Now, we're not saying Job wasn't a sinner. Of course, he was a sinner. Um, but we are saying that he was a righteous man and that, that his life is given to us and his example in similar ways that Noah and Daniel are. Um, two men who are also um, blameless in terms of their life before God. Um, and there are not a lot of figures in the Old Testament like that, right? Um, a lot of Old Testament figures fail and, and, and have significant sin before the Lord. And Noah and Daniel and Job all had sin in their lives, of course, but they are presented in the scriptures in a different kind of way than others. They're presented as blameless um, before God. Uh, Jake, James, in James chapter 5, this is another uh, really important Holy, Holy Spirit-inspired um, perspective on the person of Job. In James 5, um, James, the whole book of James is about suffering faithfully, and growing maturity and trusting God, which is what uh, was happening in the church at that time in those early years after um, Jesus' um, ascension to heaven, Pentecost, um, as the, the persecution especially led by uh, the Jewish people against the church was uh, at its most intense. 
Um, James, in that context, writing to suffering persecuted Christians who have been scattered out from Jerusalem um, because of the stoning and killing of Stephen, his murder, um, James writes, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And I think probably most, you know, primarily he's talking there about the coming of the Lord and judgment on 70 AD, which is going to end the Jewish persecution of the church. He's also, you know, just, there's a secondary pointing towards the second coming, but that's primarily, I think, what he's talking about. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And then he says, and as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, or the KJV says the patience of Job is how it's translated there. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So the Apostle James, as he's reflecting on his contemporary situation, goes back to the Old Testament and the figure that he chooses from the Old Testament to demonstrate what it means to be patient and steadfast in the midst of suffering and trial is Job. He lifts Job up and says, Job is an example and a model for you of what it means to suffer faithfully before God. And that's really significant, I think, because um, that gives us an interpretive clue to how we interpret the book of Job, which is we should look at Job and say, here is a model. Here is an example of what it means to suffer faithfully before God. Um, you know, we don't, I don't think, have to engage with the figure of Job in this story in, in an overly critical way. We can do so uh, trusting that he's given to us as a model so that we might know uh, what it is also for us um, to suffer with steadfastness and patience, um, waiting for the deliverance of God, even as James um, says to his readers there. So I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. It's a really important interpretive clue um, for reading the book of Job. We should be predisposed to say, oh, Job is doing these things. Those are the kinds of things I should do, essentially, as we suffer um, in our lives. Uh, what's the basic story of Job? Um, I'm not going to go into detail about this at all, but interestingly, um, the story of Job, I just want to make this point, is not fundamentally a tragedy. Um, you know, as you think about the, the sort of, you know, narrative shape of tragedies, um, they, they start down low, they go up high, and then they end in disaster, right? I mean, that's basically how tragedies work. Um, comedies, on the other hand, start really high, and then they go down, there's trouble, there's you know, disaster, but then at the end of a comedy, there is restoration. Um, I'm not using you know, comedy in the sense of a rom-com or whatever. These are, these are classic categories, right, for thinking about narratives. Um, and in that sense, Job, interestingly, is a comedy. It is a story that begins with Job being wealthy and having much and children and all of these things. And then, of course, very early on in the story, um, he loses that. And he goes down into the depths. Um, he goes down into the belly of the whale, so to speak, um, into the tomb, so to speak, as we think about other stories in the scriptures that are shaped like this. 
He goes down into the lion's den, right? He goes down into um, slavery in Egypt. Um, but then at the end of the story, um, as he wrestles with God, as he, um, and one of the really interesting things that happens in Job, and we'll look at this, is that in that place of um, losing everything and suffering so deeply, Job is then, in a sense, tempted and accused um, in the form of uh, three uh, supposed friends who come to him and level accusations against him. Uh, really interestingly, of course, Job um, talks about Satan being in the divine council in the beginning of the story, and Job is given over into Satan's hands. He loses all of these things, um, and then Satan disappears. Well, I would argue, well, Satan may have disappeared in terms of a, a literal way, but Satan is actually working in some sense through um, the, the men who come to Job at his lowest and begin to tell him things like, uh, Job, you must have sinned somehow, right? You must be lying to us. You must be hiding um, some sort of problem in your life from God. And again and again, they do this, right? For many, many chapters, um, this kind of wrestling takes place. Um, and Job remains steadfast. He resists their accusations. He resists um, their um, simplistic understanding of who God is. And then um, at the end of the story, he meets God. He, God comes to him. God speaks to him. And he is lifted up, he is delivered and, um, and vindicated, and he is given a double portion of all that he had lost before. Now, of course, it doesn't mean that those children weren't still dead and that he didn't still carry um, the grief and sorrow. Um, but certainly that Job is wanting us to see a U-shape, right? A fall and then a restoration that takes place. That's really important to say important to remember as we come to Job, that ultimately Job's story is a story of death and resurrection, um, like so many stories in the scriptures are, right? Um, like David being driven out into the wilderness. David loses everything himself. He loses his wife and his standing and his possessions, etc., etc. And fun finally, years later, he's restored. This is a pattern that happens again and again in the scriptures. Uh, what's interesting about Job's placement in the canon in our, you know, sort of modern Christian Bibles, of course, Job is placed before the Psalms, um, but in the original Hebrew canon, um, the order is Psalms, Proverbs, and then Job, which is really interesting because I think in many ways, Job is a book that kind of complicates um, the understanding of what it means to be blessed by God. Um, if you think about um, the, the covenant that God makes with Israel in Leviticus and then re-establishes re in Deuteronomy, um, there are all these covenant blessings and curses, right? And essentially, the way the covenant works is that if the people obey God, then they will experience good things, right? They'll experience um, good crops. Um, they will experience, um, you know, lots of babies, healthy babies being born. Um, they'll experience victory of their enemies, um, et cetera, et cetera. Good things will take place in their lives if they keep their covenant with God in obedience, but if they um, sin against God, if they worship idols, if they do all sorts of other things that break God's law, what's going to happen to them? Bad things are going to happen to them, right? Um, they're going to, uh, there's going to be a drought. You know, um, there's, they're not going to have a lot of healthy babies. Um, uh, they're going to lose when they fight their enemies um, and run before them. And so there, there's kind of this sort of like, you know, on the surface level, at least, a sort of simplistic way of relating to God, that if you do good things, God will bless you. If you do bad things, God will curse you. And there are parts of the Proverbs that on a surface level reading 
um, seem to indicate this as well. Proverbs 3 talks about, you know, my son, if you cling to wisdom, then you'll live a long and prosperous life. And um, all sorts of other things are said in Proverbs about that kind of thing. And, and these are principles that are true in a sense, right? Um, it is true <laughs> that God blesses uh, those who obey him. Um, but that blessing does not always look like things being easy or you not suffering or everything seeming on the surface to go well with you. And that's what the story of Job really introduces in a really profound way. That's the crux of the story, really. Now, there are other examples, of course, um, in the scriptures that complicate that sort of structure. You think about the story of Joseph, right? Joseph is presented as a righteous and faithful man, and yet he um, is sold into slavery and experiences all these sorts of things, thrown in prison, et cetera, et cetera, betrayed by everyone um, through no fault of his own. Um, you think about Hannah, um, you think about Naomi, you think about uh, David, etc. cetera. There, there are many stories like Job's in the Old Testament of um, quote, unquote, innocent suffering, by which I don't mean that the person was sinless, but I do mean that they're not necessarily being punished in some way um, for their sin. Um, their suffering has a different kind of, um, of character. Um, and and, and um, the, the logic, of course, of Job's accusers is that because he is suffering, therefore he must have done something wrong, right? That's the fundamental accusation again and again uh, that is brought to him, um, that he must have suffered. Um, he must have suffered from God because he's being punished for his sin. And I want to be really clear here. Um, there are occasions when God brings suffering into our life as a punishment for our sin. Um, that happens. Um, you know, Hebrews 12 talks about that. Um, that the discipline of the Lord. Um, there, are, there are times, you know, we're going to look at the story today where that happens, um, in the life of David, where his son dies um, because of his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. Uh, and to be clear, I think that sort of direct connection happens, um, not as a sort of model for us, but because of David's public role as the king of Israel and the way that he, he fell um, in his role um, as the king, um, which brought suffering upon his own household and upon the whole nation. You know, the, the death of his child is not the only consequence that David experiences because of his sin. It's also um, the, uh, that the sword will never depart from his household. And what happens, you know, the rest of David's life is that his children kill each other and they turn against David himself and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I'm not saying that God never uh, brings suffering into our life as, as consequences or punishment for our sin or judgment for our sin. I think clearly the scriptures teach that he does do that. Um, but there also is a kind of suffering that is not like that. Um, and this is, I think, the sort of more normal kind of suffering in the life of a Christian. Um, God is not seeking, in some sense, to, to bring us to a deeper level of um, you know, repentance of our sin in particular, as much as he is bringing us into suffering to mature us and to turn us into different kind of people, people who trust God in a different and new kind of way. So Job is introducing us to this theme in a really vivid and extended way, um, in some ways very different um, than anything else in the Old Testament. Job is teaching us is that blessing, as we typically think of it, does not always immediately and directly follow obedience, and suffering does not always follow disobedience. Uh, and this theme, of course, is going to point 
and be fulfilled most particularly in the life of Jesus. And in this way, Job is a kind of Christ figure. He's a foreshadowing of Jesus, right? Because uh, Jesus is going to teach things like blessed are those who mourn, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, blessed are you when you weep, um, Jesus says, these kinds of things. Um, he um, calls people into a life of suffering. He says, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself every day. Embrace death on my behalf, metaphorically or even literally, and you will be delivered and saved. Um, Jesus um, is teaching that a, 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 a righteous life is not necessarily a life that looks really prosperous and successful on the surface. A righteous um, and blessed life can be one that is full of suffering and difficulty and pain. And then Jesus, of course, embodies this himself in his own life, right? Jesus is the one who is homeless, um, who is um, accused by his enemies, um, who is ostracized and eventually is betrayed and killed. Um, and remember the logic of the people who watch Jesus die, right? The Jewish leaders. They are going back to this sort of simplistic understanding of what it means to be blessed by God. They say, if you were the son of God, if you were the Christ, come down from that cross, right? Prove it to us. Get out of the hole that you're in. Because the assumption is, we know that this would never happen. Um, God would not treat someone this way, um, who is his son, who he actually loves, who he has set apart for himself. Um, they would not be crucified and killed in this manner. And that, so that, that, you know, in some ways, the cross is the, the ultimate battle between the accusers that are there in the book of Job and the righteous sufferer um, who does not give in to their accusations, who considers himself innocent, who commits himself into the hands of his father as he dies. And then, of course, on the third day, God vindicates Jesus in a fundamental way, right? He says, no, this is the righteous one. He is, though he suffered, innocent and blameless. And that there's, of course, you know, that's, that's all foreshadowed in the book of Job um, in his own uh, metaphorical death and resurrection. Um, so on the back page, I just say um, a summary statement is that Job is the book of faithful suffering. I think that's how I want us to think about it and, and consider it as we go through it this spring. Uh, the key passage, and you know, we could pick different passages, but one of the key passages in Job is Job 13, 15, where Job says to the Lord, though you slay me, yet I will trust you. Now, even if you put me to death, still I will trust you and commit myself into your hands um, and your faithfulness. And of course, Job does not die in his story, um, but those words are fulfilled. Um, Jesus literally says that to God, right? Though you slay me, yet I will trust you. And that's what he's saying in essence when he says on the cross, naked and dying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He is essentially taking up Job's words and embodying them in an even deeper and profound way in his own experience. He's saying to God, though you slay me, yet I will trust you. And ultimately, that is the calling of faithful suffering, is no matter what, to trust that God is good. God is faithful, God is loving, God is trustworthy, even in the most difficult of circumstances. And certainly Job experiences suffering on a scale um, that you know, hardly anyone experiences. Um, the kind of devastation and loss that he experiences is profound and unique, and in some ways it is to give us a sort of extreme story 
so that we can locate the stories of our own suffering within the context of his. And um, of course, Jesus um, goes beyond the suffering of Job in certain ways, uh, but Job is an exemplar in that way, both in terms of what happens to him and how he responds to it. At the beginning of the book of Job, Job is a blameless and blessed man. He's referred to as that way, that he's blameless before the Lord. But there is something that Job has not yet experienced, and that is testing. He's not yet gone through the trial, um, like Abraham, right, before Genesis 22. Um, he had not yet gone through the trial that God had prepared for him. And at the end of the story, um, Job is still a blameless and blessed man, but now he is one that has been tested and has grown in his maturity. And this is the life of Jesus, and this is the life for all of us. Um, Hebrews um, chapter 5 um, gives us such a fascinating picture of the work and, and life of Christ and the ways in which it was, is a model for us. Hebrews 5, 8 says that although he, that is Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect or being made mature, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Um, and this is a fascinating thing that happens in the book of Job. Um, Job learns obedience to God in this way as well, through what he suffers. Um, he learns obedience by suffering and by trusting in the Lord in the midst of those things. And then being made mature at the end of the book, he doesn't become the source of eternal salvation um, like Jesus does, but he is, does take on an expanded priestly role. Because what does Job do at the end of his book? At the beginning of the book, he's offering sacrifices for his children in case they had sinned. At the end of the book, he's commanded by God to offer sacrifice for his accusers because they have sinned. So Job takes on this even more expanded priestly role, serving even his enemies, loving even his enemies, um, because he has been made mature in a new kind of way. He's gone through the fire, through the tomb, uh, through the belly of the whale, and now he offers as a priest um, uh, uh, sacrifices even for Eliphaz and for the other men who would accuse Job, falsely accuse Job of sin, who had broken the ninth commandment, who had done so in a really uh, terrible way. So I think that's a really fascinating thing. And in that way, Job and Hebrews 5 and the life of Jesus give us a model for how to think about our own lives. Is God even though you are a son or daughter of his, still going to introduce suffering into your life? Yes, he is. Absolutely. I mean, he's going to do it so that you will learn obedience, so that you will learn to trust him, so that you will become mature, so that you'll be, be ready to serve and give yourself for others in new kinds of ways. This is the pattern of the scriptures. This is the pattern of the Christian life. This is the pattern of the life of Jesus. Um, the final thing... Um, Okay, I'll just, I'll read this because I think it's important. So, so this is Job's testing in particular. Job's testing in particular um, is to trust in God in the midst of everything, not only in his loss, but in the accusations and in certainly in the doubts that must have come. Um, Job's testing is his suffering from God's hand. That's the first form of suffering, the death of his children, the loss of his wealth, the loss of his physical health and security and comfort. Um, the turning away, his wife's betrayal of him in some ways, we'll talk about her, um, the, the loneliness of all that, that's all part of the suffering. But then there's the false wisdom, 
of his counselors, their accusations against him. And then there is God's apparent absence. So this is a huge theme in the book of Job. God seems to be gone from the stage for a very long time. And again and again, what Job is crying out for is for God to come and speak to him, for God to appear um, in his presence. And all of these things, um, and then finally God does come. And all of this, Job protests, he laments, he questions, and he wrestles with God. And he does so in a really um, strong way. But he does not face straightforward, humanly wise explanations for his suffering. He, he refuses to, to sort of give in to those things. And he refuses to give up his ultimate trust in God's faithfulness. And thus he is made mature. So here's the conclusion. And this is the main takeaway that I want you to have. It is sometimes supposed that the book of Job is given to us to explain human suffering, to give us the why. I'm going to argue that that is not true. Actually, it's very clear if you read the book of Job that the why is never given. God, when he appears at the end of the story and speaks, Job wants to know why. That's certainly true. Uh, But when God appears at the end of the story, he does not tell Job why he suffered. He does not give him a straightforward explanation. Um, He simply says, essentially, I am the one who created all things. I am God Almighty. Um, Who are you, essentially, um, in relationship to me? You need to trust me. You need to trust in my goodness and my sovereignty and my wisdom. And Job does. Job commits himself into God's hands at the end of the story. So the, the book of Job is not about the why of suffering. The book of Job is about the how of suffering. It's not about why we suffer, it's it's giving us a pattern and a story and an example of how we are called um, to suffer. Um, And in this way, it points us to Jesus. Job becomes a foreshadowing of Christ. Um, So I'm going to end there. I'm not going to try to read this. We'll talk more about this paragraph um, next week because Job, importantly, is not only a book about Job, it's also a book about God. And it's a book that forces us to confront God's majesty and power and awesomeness in a, in a really unique and particular way. And I think that is, I mean, the, the last several chapters of the book of Job where God begins to speak are some of the most magnificent portions of all of the scripture, right? Where God himself speaks and opens his mouth and they are profound. And that's a huge part of the message of Job. And it's interesting, right? Job, in some sense, I think, had to suffer in order to really see and be and comprehend and experience the awesomeness and majesty of God in the way that he did. There's a link there, right? Um, those, those words don't come out of nowhere. There's a context. And that's true in our life, I think, that there is something that happens to us when we go through suffering and we experience it faithfully and we're obedient and that God can reveal himself to us in ways that we were not capable of before. Um, suffering in some sense is a way that God expands our capacity for himself. Um, and I think that's a really profound thing that happens in the book of Job. Um, he could not have heard or understood what God says at the end of the book without um, everything that comes before. All right, with that in mind, I know I've just talked the whole time here. I'm sorry for that. We'll do a lot more discussion and questions starting next week. And um, But I really wanted to put those things out as a kind of lens for us to understand this book. And I hope you all come back next Sunday and we'll jump into Job chapter one. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for the book of Job. I'm thankful for the way in which you 
instruct us through this um, magnificent book of the scriptures. Lord, I pray that you would grant us wisdom to ponder these things, um, to ponder particularly the way that Job is commended in the scriptures by Ezekiel and by James, uh, what it means that he is an example of faithful and steadfast and patient suffering, and how it is that he points us to our Lord Jesus and actually gives um, a sort of pattern for our own um, experiences, Father of learning obedience through what we suffer. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would be merciful to us in these things as we study this book and uh, that you would teach them and inscribe them on our hearts. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.